0: Welcome to World Headlines Weekly, bringing you underreported headlines from around the world. We start this week in Egypt, where state officials and leaders are preparing for the Global Climate Change Conference, COP27, which will run this year from November 6th to the 18th in the city of Sharm el Sheikh. The summit hosts political and business leaders from around the world to ostensibly address global climate change. But in recent years, Activists and workers from around the world have grown increasingly skeptical of the organization's effectiveness. In a baffling move, COP officials announced last week that Coca-Cola, the largest plastic polluter in the world, will serve as the summit's primary sponsor this year. Notwithstanding Egypt's current military regime's brutal history of repression, COP 27 may be one of the most illegitimate climate summits to date. Greenwashing is a common criticism of COP. The host country usually puts on a show of dazzling quote-unquote green displays and highlights how they've taken recent steps to fix their nation's environmental pollution. From paper straws to electric vehicles, COP officials this year have already tried to greenwash Egypt's dreadful legacy of pollution. At this year's summit, few local activists and protesters will be there to address the greenwashing because of Egypt's nationwide ban on protests. In the past, Egyptian law enforcement has arrested scores of climate protesters, with many serving years-long prison sentences. Over the past few years, activists have increasingly criticized the summit for its perceived elitism and ineffectiveness. At the summits, world leaders, business tycoons, and lobbyists usually far outnumber activists and pro-climate NGOs, since plane tickets and entrance fee prices are usually far outside the reach of local activists. In contrast, some of the worst polluting companies in the world, like Coca-Cola, are valued participants at the summit. Activists and workers also criticize the so-called solutions that come from the COP summits. One of the most popular ideas from world and business leaders are so-called development loans. These are high-interest, strings-attached loans from rich Western banks to countries across the Global South to build renewable energy projects like solar farms and green manufacturing facilities. But of course, the loans come with a high cost. The high interest usually makes them difficult to pay back and they often plunge nations deeper into debt. In fact, these high interest COP development loans lead us to our second headline of the week. Government officials in South Africa are considering a withdrawal from their COP26 funding deal which saw the UK, US, Germany, and other EU countries pledge $8.5 billion in funding to help South Africa phase out coal-fired power plants. Sources close to the talks say that South African officials want to restructure the current terms of the deal, which, right now, provides nearly 80% of the $8.5 billion pledged in the form of high-interest loans. The remaining 20% would be debt-free grants. South African officials worry that these loans will only further in-debt the country to foreign banks, building on huge loans from the World Bank that the country used to fund economic stimulus during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Negotiators are now asking for a 65-35% percent balance between high-interest loans and debt-free grants. Back in 2021, the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, called the deal a, quote, watershed moment for South Africa's renewable energy infrastructure. Currently, coal-fired power plants provide nearly 80% of the country's power, with sky-high prices and planned blackouts indicating that even this is not enough to meet South Africa's high energy demand. The country has internally planned to shift this balance and shrink the country's reliance on coal to just 60% by 2030, with renewable sources making up at least 25% of that energy supply. That said, analysts within the country are pessimistic that current investment levels will be able to fully fund the country's planned transition. Analysts estimate that the total cost of the transition to completely phase out the country's coal-fired power plants would cost a massive $250 billion. This equates to about $8.9 billion a year from now until 2050, not counting any sort of interest paid to foreign creditors for development loans. Of course, it's important to mention that fabulously wealthy Western nations and banks could provide the funding at lower rates or even provide the money for free to avert global climate catastrophe and ecological collapse. 8.5 billion is a small price to pay to help avert the collapse of our planet's ecosystem. According to the EDGAR database, an in-depth research study created by the European Commission and Netherlands Environmental Assessment Agency, South Africa creates the 12th most CO2 emissions in the world And the most out of any country in Africa. In Japan's Okinawa Prefecture, activists and protesters disrupted the construction of the United States Hinoko military base last week, using rowboats to block shipping routes to the base. Out of hundreds of protesters on land, dozens took to the water to block container ships delivering building supplies, which ultimately led to their arrest. Others blocked gravel trucks on land and stood outside the gates of the base chanting, Marines out. Besides intensifying existing tensions between Okinawans and the 32 U.S. military bases on the island, the planned U.S. Hinoko base would destroy a pristine ocean habitat off the coast of the island, home to many rare native and endangered species. To support the base, builders would need to drill about 71,000 stone pillars deep into the ocean floor, eliminating the sensitive reef ecosystems on the ocean floor. On-land construction would also displace countless human remains and graves from the Battle of Okinawa. The planned site of the military base saw some of the most intense fighting in one of the bloodiest World War II battles. The site also saw thousands of civilian deaths and the fighting killed about a third of the island's total civilian population. Builders need to dig up huge chunks of the land because they're building the base literally in the ocean. Much of the base will sit on landfill, with soil moved from the main island to build the foundation of the base. Activists say that digging up such sacred land used to support further militarization efforts is an affront to Japan's war-dead civilians. Tensions between Okinawans and the U.S. military have existed on the island since 1945. After World War II, the United States designated Okinawa as its key imperialist outpost in the Pacific, with 32 separate military installations. These take up about 15% of the island's total land area and cause a vast majority of the island's pollution. Residents have long complained about drunken soldiers, base-related crime, intense island traffic, and polluted air and water. The U.S. ruled the island under military occupation until a 1972 treaty officially ended it, almost 30 years after the war. In reality, nothing besides the legal status of the military on the island really changed. The US expanded its presence afterwards, much to the irritation of local Okinawans. The recent US-Hinoko-based struggle serves as a litmus test for US military presence going forward. While islanders are nervous about increasingly militant China, many Okinawans consider themselves independent of the conflicts between the United States, China, and Japan. The island was colonized by Japan in 1879, and the resulting privatization and impoverishment of the island left many Okinawans with a strong sense of national identity, separate from Japan. This sense of national identity and solidarity drives many Okinawans to protest their occupation today. As a result, the future of the U.S. Hinoko base remains unclear. Lastly, we head to the South American country of Colombia, where Colombia's federal government and the rebel group National Liberation Army, or ELN for short, have once again opened up peace talks to end a decades-long civil war. Talks were suspended in 2018 by former Colombian President Ivan Duque and have resumed after left-wing President Gustavo Petro won election in June and was sworn in in August. The original suspension came just a year after Colombia and the rebel group Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC for short, reached a peace deal in 2017. FARC was a far larger and far more capable fighting force than the ELN, and since the 2017 peace agreement, fighting between the government and the ELN rebels has remained minimal. The ELN initiated an unofficial ceasefire in March of 2020 during the initial COVID outbreak. Government officials and high-ranking commanders from the ELN took part in the formal peace talks announcement earlier this week, with peace talks also beginning over the weekend. Representatives from the guarantor countries of Norway, Cuba, and Venezuela are also present at the talks. Right now is a pivotal moment in Colombia's history. After another large rebel group made up of former FARC soldiers declared a ceasefire in late September, it seems like largely left-wing rebels have been satiated by Petro's election to the presidency. In a country with a long history of right-wing dictators fighting left-wing rebels, Petro represents Colombia's first left-wing president. Unsurprisingly, Petro ran on bringing a final and lasting peace to the country, along with a wide slate of progressive to left-wing economic and social policies. That said, Petro's left-wing party holds clear minorities in both legislative houses, which force him to build a broad coalition of center-left and centrist parties to form a government. His reopening of peace talks with the ELN has been one of the first major acts of his presidency. And those are your headlines from around the world. I'll be taking a break next week for travel, but the following week, I'll be back with more underreported headlines from around the world.